those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to The Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi. And Leslie. And Leslie. Everyone, welcome back, Leslie, from Mad Blender <laughs> to the show. How are you doing, Leslie? Hey, it's so good to be back. So great to have you back. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so everyone, if you are unfamiliar with Mad Blender's channel, please go check it out on YouTube. It is absolutely wonderful. And she's been on the show a few times talking about capitalist realism and mental health. And also, what was the other one we did? About the meat tax. Oh, yes. Should we tax meat for the climate, which were both right. very well-received uh, podcasts. So check those out if you haven't also. So today we're going to be talking about the women of the alt-right. Leslie has just done an in-depth video about this, which was absolutely fascinating and horrifying. Very. So, <laughs> As someone who has socialized a woman, I found it really hard to reconcile where these women were coming from. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, we'll get into it. Uh, but before we get into that, I'm going to shout out the new patrons for this month, I suppose. So thank you so much to Autumn K, Alyssa Mossman, Ethan Quinn, Gabe Ripikoff, Permaculture for the People, shout out. It's an amazing podcast that's just been renamed The Reenchantment. So check that out. Lula, Chloe Fisher, Paul V, KJ, Cadhan Ogara, Laura Childs, Lilia, Jeanette, Rory, Chris, and Rebel Cat for your generous donations. I tried my best to get everyone, but if I missed your name, please reach out and let me know and I will shout you out next time. Also, let me know if you're at the $5 or $10 Patreon tier and you have not yet received your stickers or pins. We have awesome, awesome stickers and pins now from the amazing intersectional vegan activist and artist Menika Repka of Nooch Design Co. One of them says animals are our comrades and one of them says animals want capitalism to end and they both have really awesome designs on them. So... Yeah, check those out over at patreon.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash veganvanguard or toss us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com or share this episode or any of our episodes with friends and family. And if possible, give us a rating and review on iTunes. I love reading those, especially the Canadian ones because we usually just get American ones. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and also before we jump in we're going to do as we so often do read headlines for the future submitted by the listeners so these are hopeful headlines for the future that i'm going to read out and leslie will react to and if you would like to participate in this kind of uh, activity of dreaming the future together the future that we want to see please send us your headlines and we will read them on the air so these are submitted by Chris O'Connor, shout out Chris. And these are a little bit different than a lot of the other submissions that we've gotten because these are really focused on the near future. So we're, we're talking about the very near future and Chris is focusing on, I guess, kind of policy reform or things that could potentially happen within the next, you know, five, 10 years. So 
December 19th, trans rights and mental health awareness movement hits America. So they write that amid a burgeoning movement for mental health awareness, gender dysphoria is reclassified and no longer considered a mental disorder. I mean, yeah. Um, And xenophobia is added as a mental disorder in the DSM. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about like... uh, pathologizing just really um, right shitty toxic behavior you know what i mean yeah um, or or attitudes True. as much as just yeah but but i but yeah it's an interesting idea yeah <laughs> like i get the sentiment obviously yes it's like well yes. certainly there is something unbalanced within your soul if you are xenophobic yes. but um yeah maybe we should limit the amount of things that we're actually calling mental disorders right right i don't know yeah but i mean yep. certainly yes yep. gender dysphoria uh should not be considered that absolutely um okay so then january 20 2021 united states president administration starts off with radical policy changes on their inaugural day the new united states presidential administration announces a comprehensive education reform including significant changes such as free access to socialized child care yes unburdening an estimated 100 million parents including undocumented immigrants additionally school curriculums are reorganized around education instead of capital teaching children about other cultures and religions sex education and teaching the perspectives of those on the exploited side of colonialism yes Uh, The Department of Education is heavily funded by diverting all current expenditure on military contracts with Boeing and other military contractors into education. (laughs) Teachers are guaranteed a living wage of $75,000 that is adjusted for inflation monthly. (laughs) Wow. Yes. A new branch of the Department of Education is open called the United States Department of Childhood Development, opening jobs for hundreds of thousands of childcare workers. And the United States Department of Homeland Security is defunded and depreciated uh, to fund this. Deprecated to fund this? Yes. Yeah. Sounds... Wow. Good. (laughs) So much good stuff there. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's Um, 2021. So, um, So they... That's some high hopes. Very high hopes. I mean, I think yeah. <laughs> it depends who gets in, right? So I'll just go ahead to because yeah, they course. say um, November 2024, it's a wave election year in America. Um, I think that honestly, Bernie is the only one who could. And it's not that he himself would pull off radical changes. It's that he would be the quote unquote or- organizer in chief where he like yeah. he would be up there uh, encouraging people to actually get out into the streets and form movements around these things because there's no way for obviously just the president to do any of this. So, um, I mean, obviously these are high hopes, but this that's what that's what this is about. Hopeful headlines yes, for the future, yes, what yes. we want to see, right? Um, so that yes. would be great in the in the short term, in the interim. And then November 2024, it's a wave election year in America. Warren slash Sanders slash Harris, um, not sh- they, they said they're not sure about Harris, just they're pointing out, like, it could be anyone on the slightly progressive side. I would say, I'm going to say, I'm just going to editorialize here and say, it's got to be Sanders. <laughs> it's yes. got to be Sanders. And if you uh, want oh to God. learn more about that, um, yeah, Media Roots and also Eyes Left have done really great episodes on Warren and Harris. <laughs> so check those out. 
Um, but anyway, so we'll say Sanders is elected with a mandate unseen in almost a century that has contributed to the unprecedented rise in income equality during the first term of the administration. With this mandate, Sanders commits their second term to the Green New Deal program of new legislation around environmental sustainability, degrowth, with an emphasis on not reducing social welfare and solidarity with other nation states to mitigate the relentless increase in environmental catastrophes. Sounds great. Um, Yes. I mean, my one, my critique would be that degrowth is actually impossible under capitalism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all the degrowth literature, I've even been to conferences that are, you know, talking about degrowth and it really just comes down to, you know, well, how are we actually going to actualize this within capitalism? Well, yeah, it's, we're not going to degrow within this political economy. Yeah, yeah. But I obviously am very much for the Green New Deal. It be, you know, this this is what we can accomplish right now. Um, and I think we should accomplish as much as we can as soon as possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. Capitalism is not, unfortunately, I don't see it being overthrown within the next 10 years or anything like that. So yes, yes. we... So I do think we have to do whatever we can within the system. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, that may not be the the great systemic change that we would like to see. Um, but every little bit does um, go for something. And we do need to do something as climate catastrophe emerges, you know. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Like anyway, it. I think this would definitely be a... A step in a positive direction. I mean, I know a lot of leftists really just discount electoral politics. And, you know, not that I that's why I like what Sanders, like the the position he's taking now, in that he's admitting that even if I get elected, all of this stuff is not going to change. You know, one person, one president, one politician is never going to be able to change all of this. But that's why we need uh, people in the streets, like we need people coming together. And so um, I think that I think that this would be a step in the right direction because um, it would just expose more and more people to these kinds of ideas. And for me, just the thought of that many people actually agreeing with progressive policies to the point that they are wanting to vote for them is hopeful. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what's so frustrating right now going on in in Trump's America. It seems like. There's been, you know, whether it's a rise in hate crimes or just people feel more emboldened um, to be to feel hateful Mm -hmm. or 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 whatever. So I would love to see, for example, a Bernie Sanders in place, even just to turn the tide and and uh, bring about a new uh, a new attitude and way of looking at the world and get people more excited and and uh, hopeful for the future and into a more progressive type of politics instead of um, this constant othering where we're for you know example Trump's rhetoric of just um, whether it's immigrants or who, whoever it is just the constant constant us versus them mentality that is just dividing uh, our people um, in in the United States here and and I'm sure like you said in your in Canada the same type of thing is going on mm-hmm. and so yeah it's it's really frustrating and it's it's really frustrating because people are, are there's so many people that are just in uh, vulnerable 
stressful uh, situations and, um, the, you know, they're just trying to make a living and trying to get by in this world. And and so they hear that it's whether it's it's immigrants fault, it's the refugees fault, it's the whoever's mm-hmm. fault. And like you said, they don't necessarily have um, a different lens with which to view the world. So uh, they they kind of pick up this rhetoric and, and it's just, yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I would love to see a, a, a change in that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Even even just to have like social Democrats be the ones who are emboldened to actually get out yes. there and say things as opposed to like the horrible racist reactionaries who are emboldened. Yes. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Exactly. I, I don't think I keep I keep qualifying this by being like, obviously, we want more than social democracy. And I think everyone <laughs> should know that that's yes. That's where we're at, but you know, I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope people under- understand what we're throwing down here today. Yes, of um, okay, so that's it. Thank you so much, Chris, for those uh, hopeful headlines. And uh, yeah, once again, yeah, that was great. Send them in if you want to to read them off. Um, so Leslie, let us jump into this yeah. absolutely <laughs> horrifying topic: the women of the alt right. I just want to start by giving a bit of a disclaimer that the discussion we're about to have is likely going to be very binary because most of the stats that we have looks at, you know, men and women. And we're talking about a movement that sees the gender binary being very uh, important and stark. We're talking about a movement that talks about gender complementarity, which believes in, you know, real men and real women. So I apologize just off the bat that the discussion is is fairly binary, but I, I hope people still appreciate uh, us talking about this and, and analyzing these issues. So I thought that we could start just by talking about, uh, you know, some of the obvious links between toxic masculinity and the far right, uh, and then move into women's role and and why we actually underestimate the reach of women within this movement. So yeah, do you want to kind of start off with what you think the the links are between toxic masculinity and the far right? Yeah, so (laughs) there's a lot. So I'd say the alt-right tends to be just this never-ending, I guess, pit of toxic masculinity and actively recruits its members from groups like McDow, which is men going their own way, uh, from men's rights activists, um, pickup artists, incels, which are often full of, you know, insecure and sometimes quite vulnerable men trying to just make sense of the world. And um, so these demographics often, you know, serve as perfect recruiting grounds for the alt-right. So these you know, men will come into the movement and um, they'll be told that they need to become quote unquote alpha males, which basically just entails this fetishization of like male supremacy, um, domination, anti-feminism, you know, Mm -hmm. they'll be told that uh, feminism and women's autonomy is a severe detriment to Western civilization and that, you know, women are supposed to be subservient to men. They'll be told that minority populations are animals and a threat to the purity of white women and 
you know, therefore the purity of future generations. And then, of course, the contradiction here is that, you know, white men are supposed to be on top of this hierarchy, right? This is this is what they preach. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if this was true, there would be no reason for them to be afraid of losing power or ceding ground to women and more minorities. Right. So um, there's this contradiction, you know, um, they're very afraid of feminism and multiculturalism. And and that's where the anti-Semitism comes into play, too. So they'll say, you know, if Jewish people weren't in so many positions of power, pushing their, you know, narratives of multiculturalism <laughs> and cultural cultural Marxism or whatever, then men would still be on top. And so basically, we just, you know, need a return to traditional gender roles and a white ethno state free of uh, white Jewish people, by the way, and right. then everything will be golden, right? Um, and so it's like this whole delusional story that they've created um, in their heads to reassure themselves that they're destined to be on top. And Mm -hmm. it's really just the, you know, epitome of insecurity masquerading itself as confidence to like the highest degree, this like really hyper masculinization, extreme competitiveness, and this very hierarchical mindset, which Mm -hmm. is obviously incredibly destructive, but ultimately fits very well with an ideal based on white supremacy. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, it it definitely is insecurity to the highest degree, because, right, if you actually saw yourself as superior, you wouldn't need to prove it all the time, right? Right. If you actually saw, if you actually thought that you were on top, you wouldn't have to scapegoat people like Jewish people for ruining, you know, your masculinity, right? And I I feel like men, you know, toxic masculinity, um, it's even men who aren't brought into the far right movement are still told in a in a very large way in our society that they need to be alpha males, right? Yes. Like even just in our regular, you know, capitalist patriarchal society, most men are given signals through their socialization that they need to be alpha. Yes. And so, I mean, I think obviously that would lend itself to to being taken in by these movements uh, from the far right, because there's so much anxiety around that, around being that actual masculine alpha dude. And if you don't feel like you're living up to that reality, then yeah, of course you need to other other people. You need to find scapegoats. You need to find reasons why you're not living up to this vision of perfect masculinity and and alpha maleness instead of just actually questioning, well, what the hell is this? Like, you know, what is masculinity? What does it mean to be a good man, a strong man, um, a courageous man? And do we need to actually break this stuff down, right? Like, instead of just abandoning this idea of like, well, never mind, I don't actually need to be that. I'm good. I don't need to reach for this unattainable, ridiculous, toxic thing. Instead of doing that, it's like, oh, well, you know, I, I could be that thing and I would be that thing if it wasn't for the Jews. Right. <laughs> you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I just think... um also, too, the way this toxic masculinity is mani- manifesting itself, like within these far slash alt right movements, is through violence. Like, so that's the other thing that, um, like, as this ideology spreads more and more, I think that's maybe why we're seeing um, so many, especially in the United States, so many mass shootings that have been taking yeah. place that are really rooted in white supremacy and toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and. 
you know, we kind of look at these events as like the way they're at least like portrayed on by the president and in the news is like just, you know, these singular horrific events, right? Like lone wolves doing bad things. But really, I think like I think this is actually a systemic issue um, based in white supremacy, which is organized. And this movement is is old. It's generations old. It's been around. Well, I know around the Vietnam War times, um, the neo-Nazis, a bunch of uh, different groups all like coalesced into a broad-based white power movement that has only it kind of went underground for a while and now it's just resurfaced as the Mm alt-right and just sort of been rebranded um but it's i mean it's just a rebranding of white supremacy yeah i mean white supremacy and definitely deeply uh you know patriarchy as well and and patriarchy (laughs) Um, i was listening one of my new favorite podcasts is seriously wrong it is amazing it is amazing i love those guys oh my god they're so funny yes and it's just great so much good stuff. Yes. yes Anyway, I was listening to The Power of Friendship, and they were talking about, um, you know, these mass shootings and that, you know, it's typically, typically around the age of 16 or so is when men report, I guess, losing a lot of their friends, right? You know, you like, you, ha- you have mm. solid friendships where you talk through things and whatnot, and you have support, you have, you know, a network of support. And then around that time, people tend to have, or men, sorry, tend to have fewer and fewer friends. And so they're yeah, they're kind of just isolated. Um, they end up putting a lot of their emotional needs onto like if they have a girlfriend, it'll be like, okay, this person is going to, um, you know, be my emotional outlet, right? So they end up like, mm. so, you know, their girlfriends end up doing all this emotional labor. Um, and then if their girlfriend leaves them or whatever, then obviously, they're very, um, you know, uh, upset. And then once again, just very isolated, and then just sitting mm. online, you know, and that's, that's, you know, partly what leads to this kind of violence. And it's actually really interesting, because I'm going to go into some stats later. But one of the stats is that, you know, divorced, like men who are divorced, (laughs) or people who are divorced are much more likely to fall into this far right kind of white supremacist movement. And I mean, if you think about, if you think about it in that way, in terms of like the 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 fact that a lot of men don't actually have a lot of close friends that they really have um that they can really be vulnerable and emotional with mm. all of their emotional outlet is just their their wife or their spouse or whatnot and then you lose that and then it's it's just very easy to then um fall into this thing where you're like well yes i need to <laughs> i need to remasculate re myself um i need to i don't know build a community of like-minded people even if our ideas are all hateful garbage anyway i thought that was really interesting yeah that's such a good point something i know we're going to talk about the the women in a little bit but the all it's it's funny because the alt-right women in this movement will really uh cheer on these men's most like toxic desires like they uh what they a lot of what they preach is you know they view violence and hate as a romantic gesture of like white men's love for white women so for example like white men you know participated in colonial conquest and genocide in order to uh create western civilization 
civilization, which is a gift to all white women. And they'll see that as they'll romanticize it and see it as romantic. Um, Or like white men hate immigrants and people of color because they're concerned for the purity of their white women, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a whole thing. So it's a whole (laughs) thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah, but yeah, so this um, Michael Kimmel, a U.S. sociologist in his book, Healing from Hate, How Young Men Get Into and Out of Violent Extremism, says that far-right groups use masculinity in three ways. They use it to describe or explain people's situations. So if you're single or unemployed, it's because others took your job, others took your girl. So really playing to the the sense of entitlement that I think a lot of... um, people who are socialized as men in this society Mm -hmm. are taught to feel. Um, Second, masculinity is used to problematize the other. So they are not real men because either they're too effeminate or they're too animalistic. Um, And lastly, they use it to recruit members so you can regain your masculinity and thus your girl and your job by fighting the quote-unquote others. Yeah, that's so it. Yeah. So I mean... When we think of the alt-right, when we think of the far-right, we think of men, right? Um, I always thought of men. And to me, it just makes so much sense. It, like, it, it really, like, it's very clear to me that most Nazis are just, you know, little boys inside who are just trying to prove themselves in, in some way, right? Mm-hmm. They're just desperate to prove themselves. And that makes sense to me. It makes sense that, like, that kind of um, aggression and, you know, being socialized to be uh, an aggressor and an alpha, that would lead to this kind of um, toxic, you know, becoming part of these toxic groups. But for me, thinking about women joining that, you know, being socialized as a woman, being socialized to care about other people's needs above my own, right? Like, to always worry about how other people are feeling and um, to make sure that I'm, I'm there to support them, etc., being socialized in this way, I mean, obviously it's not unproblematic either the way that women are socialized in this society, but it's just so difficult for me to understand where these women are coming from. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so much work has been done on masculinity in the far right, but very little work has focused on why women have strong feelings of white identity and supremacy and support the movement, despite the fact that women and men support radical right attitudes to a similar extent. And again, I'll get to some stats later. But yeah, you talked about in your video, uh, Leslie, you talked about the history of women in alt-right movements and like the KKK. So I was wondering if you could maybe go into that a little bit and, and why you think it is that we um, we underestimate their reach. Yeah, I think um, so white women have been necessary um, and active participants in white extremist movements for as long as, you know, they've existed. Um In the 1920s, women were integral to the formation and the organization of the KKK. Um, We know that more than half of white women who voted voted for Trump. So I think um, women really uh, sanitize the image of white supremacy. They put a softer face on the movement. And so they do become vital and necessary. Um, In the 1920s, at the height of their popularity, women were often more successful than men men in carrying on their racist message Mm -hmm. um, because they were able to sort of 
mask it with this sort of fake concern for social welfare. There's a, a number of reasons, but so they'd recruit members into the movement by um, appealing to their concern for their country. You know, they'd talk about preservation of culture for future generations. They'd talk about um, motherhood and, you know, appeal to uh, 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 women's maternalism, um, you know, appeal to, you know, safety from invaders, that kind of thing. They would organize charity events um, with the proceeds all going to the clan. Um, they would lobby government, uh, advocating for, you know, racial segregation, um, immigration quotas, all that kind of stuff. And uh, even as, you know, the KKK came to the end, um, or, it, you know, it's it kind of dispersed, the women still worked throughout the next, you know, however many decades to spread their ideology through different forms of um I don't know, civic engagement, I guess, PTO and school board meetings, different forms of local and national politics, and we get their message out that way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there were a number of prominent um, uh, white supremacists that uh, developed new chapters of white supremacist movements, whether that's um, KKK or different kind of white power movements. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think um, because women are often seen as meek and uh, softer or whatever, they're, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. what's the word, Uh, less... um, They're not uh, held responsible. Yes, yes, held less responsible, not seen as being um, active members, as seen Mm -hmm. more as as doing like the maybe the behind the scenes work or just being the wives of the prominent members. Mm -hmm. But it's not true um, at all, because throughout history, they've been active. And now we can see women like Lana Lakteff and um, (laughs) Brie Fouché. And Mm -hmm. um, I know I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there's plenty of prominent women out there getting the message out, being active voices in the community. Tara McCarthy, Lauren McCarthy. Uh, yes, Faith yes, Goldie. Yes, yes. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah, I just I drew a blank. There's plenty. <laughs> yeah, there's so plenty. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um uh, and I think that also it's it's that, you know, in this movement, since so much of it is framed around, you know, masculinity and protecting women from the others and whatnot, um, I think women also just get to get get seen uh either like the the victims or like the people who are just being protected as opposed to active agents in um in promoting this and and seeking that quote-unquote protection so yeah this is from uh an article called called the secret weapon of the far right um it was like a it was a great i'll link it in the show notes it was kind of a like a photo journal um so the photographs were done by glenna gordon and then um the article was written by sayward darby And it says that uh, women are really crucial to the cause because they're aspirational symbols. Um, They're bridges Mm. bridges to the mainstream. So like you said, in terms of sanitizing the movement. Um, And Mm. they're important as literal vessels, so wombs, for white America's future. Right? So, I mean, there's this whole belief that white genocide is happening. Um, You should definitely watch Sean's video about this if you think that it is happening so yeah, the uh, Gordon traveled around the country and and met all these women and took their portraits, and um, it, the portraits are really stunning and really they they give a little um, little caption about each one so you get to know about them. It's really really fascinating. But she said that they all really share a similar worldview and they're worried about the future of white children and their integrity as a race, and they code their racism in the language of family values and preserving culture and serving their community, etc. Right? Yes. And so, yeah, it's just really fascinating. It's it's like on on the male side, it's like, well, this is 
very much rooted in ego, right? You have to construct the other to construct yourself. And it's this deep anxiety about um, living up to this idea of masculinity that I, I think is really driving a lot of the the hate and the vitriol, right? And for women, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but it's kind of also, it's, just, it's like the fear of the other. I mean, there's so many things that, that go into that. Um, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to just the need to other other people for pretty not sound reasons, right? Absolutely. <laughs> for, for pretty like unbalanced reasons, right? But yeah, so in, in terms of, uh, you know, just women in, in the KKK, etc., um, they write that the United Daughters of Confederacy, which was incorporated in 1919, uh, was responsible for installing public monuments across the South, honoring men who fought, fought to preserve slavery. And they also established uh, textbooks to ensure that children learned a version of history that celebrated the Confederacy and that downplayed mm-hmm. the role of slavery. Um, they, one, one approved book from 1895 describes the KKK as necessary for self-protection. And then when the Klan, uh, resurged in the 1920s, uh, one of its most powerful propagandists was a woman named Elizabeth Bessie Tyler, who was the owner of Searchlight, which is a Klan newspaper. In the 50s and 60s, many women, uh, not just Klan supporters, became grassroots campaigners against progressive policies like school integration. Right. Mm. So um, a, a historian said that, you know, in terms of white supremacy, homes were the early sites where racial lines were policed and schools functions at functioned as extensions of that domestic space. So segregated schools were necessary to reinforce the lessons taught in white homes about racial difference. And I thought that was really mm. interesting because, yes, of course, I mean, the home is such a site of. Um, learning. So these, I, I was just like, yes, oh my God, like the domestic space is so important here. Well, and that makes sense too, why so many um, of these uh, alt-right t- t- uh, trad wives, traditional wives, now advocate for homeschooling their yes, yep. their children because because now schools are apparently teaching cultural Marxism and feminism. And so that's, you will see that's a big, all of these um, prom, not even just anybody, uh, just just regular trad wives will uh, talk about the importance of, mm. of, of homeschooling um, to, to, main, to, to maintain these white supremacist values and raise, you know, so they can raise their racist children um, without any outside influence you know and that's really really sad it's actually really horrifying because i mean you know never never mind white genocide or whatever like i'm worried about left genocide you know right i'm worried like like it's actually very concerning that so many of these women are having like six eight kids whatever and they're all homeschooling them and then of course leftists are having few kids or you know, not any kids because, you know, we're concerned about climate change or the future or whatever. Um, right. And yes. so, yeah, all of us are opting to to not do that or not, uh, you know, whatever. And yes. then these white supremacists are having, you know, 10 children homeschooling them all. I'm just, you know, the next generation. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. I can't imagine. Um, I just can't imagine, you know, the kids of tomorrow being just overrun by... I mean, I, I don't think they are. I think actually this is like a very small percentage of the population that is actually yeah. doing this, but still. Right. But still, <laughs> it's just scary to think that anybody thinks this is a sound way to raise a family. Right. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. Ugh. Yes. Ugh. 
Yeah, so I wanted to just briefly talk about a few stats on attitudes of people who identify with white identity and, you know, white supremacy, because most radical right parties have a clear gender gap in their electorate, which is roughly around 60% male or men and 40% female. This is very binary. So anyway, sorry about that. So yeah, these stats are from... Uh, the Demography of the Alt-Right by George Hawley. So I mentioned before the people who were divorced had uh, a higher propensity for um, agreeing that agreeing with, you know, white supremacy, white solidarity, the importance of white identity, etc. Interestingly, having no college degree also makes you uh, more apt to agree or to support like white supremacy, white identity, white solidarity. Mm. Not very surprisingly either, uh, the lower income that you are also the higher propensity that you will, that you will agree with white supremacy. Um, and you know, it, there's, there's a graph here. I can link it in the show notes that just shows the propensity for people, uh, supporting these things goes down as you go up in income. Um, I think it makes sense that if you, you know, if you're making a hundred K a year, you don't really have to worry so much about the Jews or you don't have to you like, you know, you don't, you don't yeah. feel like maybe you're being emasculated by the society around you because you've largely made it right. Yes. Um, and yeah, so obviously I don't want to paint low income people as just inherently reactionary, not at all, but there is a higher propensity um, of people with, no college degree and with lower income to uh, fall into these kinds of movements. But what I just really wanted to talk about with the stats was that uh, in terms of identifying with white identity, solidarity, and with thinking that white people are being discriminated against, women actually have a slightly higher percentage, you know, uh, uh, than men, which is interesting because... Wait, say that again? So in terms of identifying strongly, like the, the graph shows the percentage of people who identify strongly with white identity, white solidarity, and with feelings that white people are being discriminated against. And women actually have a slightly higher propensity for that than men. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Which hmm. is very interesting. Yeah. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> would not have guessed that either <laughs> so why do we think that is why do we think that oh is gosh. big big huh. question there yeah so there's a few different reasons why <laughs> why i think um women join uh movements like this so a big thing is they they paint a picture of uh say 50 years ago or something you know they'll they'll uh paint a picture of the perfect uh 1950s housewife cleaning the house in a dress and heels <laughs> having you know dinner ready for her husband the second he returns home from work the perfect like kind of leave it to beaver uh kind of household um and they'll say that you know that's what what they represent that's what they are of course i mean we know we know that this isn't the case um and even if it was true it would have mostly been true for some white women definitely not at all for you know women of color or anything which i guess is the point because mm -hmm. it's obviously advocated more towards um white women if anyone had the the luxury of you know staying home and just making their houses beautiful it would have been uh white women but it was definitely a small percentage mm -hmm. and 
I know that there's um, one study that the alt-right women, especially women like Lana Lochtef and them, like to cite that um, talking about how women were supposedly happier before the sexual revolution and before feminism Mm -hmm. and that, you know, feminism has in fact been, you know, a revolution gone wrong where, you know, women, they'll say that women have been pressured into spaces meant for men, meaning like the workplace. They're, you know, forced into lifestyles that go against their biological essence or something like that like that because I think we're going to talk a little bit in in a little bit about how um, they kind of believe in this idea of gendered complementarity where women um, take on the caregiving roles, men take on the more rational leadership, that that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, So anyway, so but the point being, um, they'll say that feminism and stuff is is the cause of women's increased unhappiness. Um, But of course, this completely ignores uh, the you know shit economy, the right. um, increasing number of single mothers that need to work more than one job just to survive and pay for daycare, the fact that women continue to perform the lion's share of you know unpaid housework, even as they take on greater responsibility at their jobs, mm-hmm. um, or that the fact that traditionally female-oriented professions like or women, prof- whatever, um, like caregiving and social work are, you know, worth less, like get paid less than traditionally man-oriented jobs like, you know, STEM or whatever. So anyway, so they'll blame feminism for that all instead of considering the larger social and systemic issues at play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny that they would say that fem like f- the sexual revolution <laughs> forced yeah. me into the labor market. Like no no, the labor market forced you into the labor market. <laughs> yes. Darling. Exactly. Like <laughs> oh. Yes, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I I saw on Facebook someone had posted this tweet about how I feel like such a failure. It seems like I just never have time to, you know, work my job, make healthy dinners for myself, work out, have fun on the weekends, you know, do anything. I just feel like I'm falling down on every front, you know, keeping my house clean. I feel like I can't even do that. And then someone had responded, you know, like, no, it's not you. It's not that you are failing. It's that the way that we're living now and the 40 hour work week that we have now is a relic from the post world war time where the economy was booming and you yes. had the new deal and it's predicated upon the idea that you're not doing that it's not one single person who's doing that you have someone who can work a full-time job and support an entire family and you know that buys them a house and that buys them a car and that you know what i mean But it's predicated upon all of that unpaid labor of your spouse that you're assumed to have. And, you know, dear women white supremacists, it's not that the sexual revolution forced you into this job. It's that, you know, since the 1970s, there have been systematic attacks on labor. I mean, labor's share of the output of profit has stagnated significantly. So no, one person working you know, cannot support an entire household anymore. Unless you're very lucky, very privileged, it's, it's just not going to happen. And so it's, it's ironic because it's like, you know, if you actually did want the freedom to stay home and raise children, and that's actually what you wanted, then A, you would need feminism, but B, you would also need 
anti-capitalism or at least a really cogent critique of neoliberalism right yes like you would at the very least want some you know new deal policies right because how in the hell how in the hell are you expecting to be able to stay home and raise a family on today's incomes with the with the housing market the way that it is right it's it's unbelievable it's are you not seeing what's happening in the world. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's why not only like I think we'll talk a little bit later about the othering of well, and we've already kind of talked about it. Um, The othering of just just everybody. Not only do they other LGBTQ folks, they other um, they don't want women in their movement that don't want kids. But also they obviously don't even want poor white women in their right. movement because it's based upon the the idea that you have to stay home and and and, and make things beautiful and raise the kids and all of that but that can't happen if you don't have the income mm-hmm. this supposed you know husband is supposed to have the best job to provide the income so that you can stay home so by there's another group that is excluded mm-hmm. from this you know ideal movement because that is like you said predicated upon a an economy that has just let the majority of the population down yeah and isn't working for working people and that also creates a kind of a feedback loop where because you're not actually conscious of the economy that you're operating within then yeah the the whole idea is that like well your man should have a good enough job your man should (laughs) your man should make enough money to support you and that i think that's also playing into the anxiety that a lot of young men and like you know young young incels are feeling when they get sucked into these movements because they're just like well, you know, I don't have a job or I have a job that I hate and I'm so isolated and I don't have a I don't have a girlfriend and I don't have any friends and, you know, and they just end up feeling like these failures because they're like, "Well, I I'm I'm not a success. I'm not able I'm not able to support a wife and a family." And it's like, "Dude, that's not your fault." <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, like exactly. like look at the economy, right? Look at the labor market. Look at the broader systems that are disenfranchising you right and then again instead of blaming that economy though they'll blame everybody else again immigrants yes. uh people of color the, the, and so they're they're way off the mark yes and what they're looking as the as the problem because that's not the problem at all those people are not the problem at all <laughs> right yeah, or they'll be like, oh, well, it's the Jews that are doing it. As if we don't have, or the like, oh, yeah, CEOs, right. landlords, everything of every different, uh, you know, color, stripe, religion, background, everything, you know? As if the ruling class – I mean, I think – aren't Jews only, like – there's not that many Jews in the world. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's a small percentage. But apparently they're all – they take all the positions of power. Like, that's the that's the whole right. theory is that – I mean, it, that's, you know, you know, it's just patently absurd. Like, look at the ruling right. class no, across sure. the entire world, you know. Right. And then also not only, like, just that they're, that they're supposedly in uh, positions of power, but that they are secretly orchestrating the downfall of white people, which is also – even more patently absurd. So. Totally. And I mean, yeah, yeah. as if, you know, uh, evangelical or Christian people are not 
simultaneously, you know, p- not part of trying to exploit others at all, right? <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I definitely think, yeah, those are great points. From this article that I was talking about earlier, uh, Gordon, who went around the country and, and spoke to a lot of these women and took their photos, etc., um, said that there are many reasons why women, you know, white women are supporting this movement. Some people have just recently jumped on the bandwagon thanks to propaganda spread by, you know, social media and Breitbart and Infowars and the Daily Stormer and things like that that talk a lot about, you know, white genocide and the ills of feminism, etc. Um, some women were drawn by promises of a movement that imbues their femininity with enormous power. And I think that, that this is this is a key part of this, right? So they're told that simply by being white, by being female, by being attractive and fertile, that they will be valuable beyond measure <laughs> to a <laughs> renegade but righteous cause, right? Yes, yes, yes. And I, Wombs for the cause, yeah. Exactly. And I think that this ties in really well with, you know, I, part of me when I was watching your video on the subject was thinking that this has to be in part trying to, uh, in, like a mechanism of self-preservation under patriarchy and capitalism. So stemming from a, a deep feeling of vulnerability in this system and then, you know, wanting to do whatever is possible to, to gain any any protection from that that they can, right? Because if you think about, you know, patri- under patriarchy and capitalism, right, men, we've talked about this before, like sexual dimorphism kind of makes it such that it is difficult, you know, it's difficult to reason with somebody who has physical might over you, because if they want to get their way, they can just use that might, you know? And so being in the position of trying to get someone to not use their might on you is scary, right? It's difficult. And then also under capitalism, you know, as, as you said, a lot of women are single mothers, or, you know, if you know, in a lot of cases, if you go out and try to get a job, you're going to be underpaid, or, you know, the field that you're in is probably going to be underpaid if you're in something that is more kind of like a female type job. And Absolutely. so, yeah, I mean, it's scary. I think that part of this is kind of this idea of self-preservation and also as as Gordon says they want more than life is offering and with this movement they get the opportunity to feel important to feel like they're on the brink of change and to feel counterculture and um women that that Gordon has encountered seem to know their power and their place in the movement and in relation to the men in their lives so in quote unquote submitting to white patriarchy whether they call it that or not um, women are doing their part to preserve the politics of whiteness and with it their own privilege which they believe is their birthright so I don't know like for me I, I just feel like that that's got to be part of it right like wanting to wanting to kind of be protected against the broader patriarchal capitalist system that they see just kind of destroying i mean destroying women of color destroying like destroying poor women just like just destroying women you know (laughs) and i think that's also the the key with the insult movement as well it's just like well in this movement i will have value and other people will recognize that value because right now they feel valueless and obviously looking around at society right now and seeing, you know, the way that women are completely 
you know, rape culture, et cetera, the way that women are completely devalued in, in so many ways being like, well, I want to secure my value. Right. And then, so you submit to patriarchy in the hopes that, you know, well, if I submit to your power, like I will submit to your power as long as you promise to take care of me at all costs. And like, you know, screw those other women, screw those women of color, screw those poor women. But as long as, as long as I'm doing what you say, then you better treat me right. And I'll give you children and I'll give you the, you know what I mean? It's just, it's like this weird strategic bargaining tactic of like, please don't oppress me too much, Mm. you know? (laughs) And like, why would you submit to someone else's power unless you are just really scared that this is actually the best that you can hope for? Like, you wouldn't just, like, why in the fuck would you be like, yes, sir, please have power over me and tell me what to do and organize the, you know what I mean? Why in the hell would you want to give other people so much control over you and your body and your life and your, you know, your security, unless you're like, yeah, this is the best I can hope for. So I'm going to, I'm going to really hopefully try to get these like aggressive men to be on my side so that they don't harm me. And in fact, they protect me above all else, you know? Right. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And to, to go along with that, another reason I think that like what you were saying, um, that people joined the movement is based on this politics of fear, right? Um, I know Lana Lochtef, um, in one of her interviews has said that the best way um, to recruit women is to play upon their fears, whether that be um, fears of being um, raped or of being replaced. Um, I, the main way that they do that is us- using um, racialized sex as a fear tactic. So, you know, they'll mm-hmm. conjure up tropes about immigrants and refugees and people of color as these um, uncivilized barbarians coming to rape the white women or, and render them, you know, unpure. And, and this is, again, where they'll talk about the ways in which feminism has failed to protect them, that women are more exploited, they're more objectified than they ever were, and that traditionalism is the answer to all this. And mm-hmm. oftentimes they'll use... Um, Uh, A lot of these trad wife uh, accounts on Twitter or whatever, Facebook will spread posts, hashtag me too posts, um, and they'll use that movement to show how um, the sexual revolution was a a big failure because, uh, see, women are still getting raped. They're still getting assaulted Mm. in droves. And by living a life of modesty and getting married and having children, as traditionalism promotes, um, you'll somehow be protected from all this. And um, Mm -hmm. as I said, I think in my video, like humble attire doesn't prevent rape. Marriage doesn't prevent domestic violence. You know, it's it's right. a line of bullshit so yeah no it's it's absolute bullshit i mean and it's so gross because i think if you actually look at the stats you know like refugees or immigrants are really not actually raping women at like a disproportionately high rate and in fact the majority of sexual abuse and and rape and whatnot happens within the home yeah right like the majority of sexual abuse that happens um you know, against women and children, it's usually by someone that you actually know yes, personally, right? Yes. And so this idea that this other is going to come in and do this, like, no, we have to, we have to take seriously that we do live in uh, a rape culture, in mm-hmm. a patriarchal society that, um, that allows this to go on, 
And of course, you know, of course that, that trying to blame it on, I just, I, I'm just like, no, actually in your home or like in your family, because it's, it's just, it's such a weird, you know, traditionalism is just such a weird, like depraved kind of <laughs> an idea, right? Like, yeah. I, I mean, clearly someone like Lana is, you know, being strategic about employing that politics of fear. And, and I wonder that, you know, whether whether or not a lot of women who join these kinds of movements, um, whether it is also just kind of a strategic individualist way of thinking, you know, we've all been indoctrinated with this individualist competitive way of thinking under the system. And you think about, you know, white women completely sell, even the white feminists, right? You think about white feminists completely selling out women of color in the movement, just because, you know, because when you're in this hierarchy and you're being oppressed, you know, I think it's easy for people to gain, if you gain a modicum of privilege within this hierarchy, um, then, you know, it, I can see, I mean, we've seen many times in history that people will just fight tooth and nail to maintain that modicum of privilege and will sell out other people, even within their own movement, in order to be like, this is fine, right? Like, at least, at least we're here. You know, we made it here. And it, I mean, it's so obviously counterproductive because if you had actually stuck together and had solidarity with this much bigger group, then you could obviously force much more change because you have just a broad mass movement instead of allowing yourself to be divided and conquered and just accept whatever mere gains you, you get, right? So, you know, the fact that even white feminists have strategically sold out other women and other people to maintain their privilege, it's not really surprising to me that you know white nationalist women would also think that this is a way of just gaining some privilege for themselves in this you know modern late stage capitalism that they loathe <laughs> oh my god girl have you seen the handmaid's tale oh my god that is my biggest fear now just watching that and after after having like studied these women of the alt-right i'm like oh my gosh this is what's gonna happen if we if they get what they want like i've only seen um half of the first season i've seen like the first six or seven episodes um but i'm it's so scary <laughs> i'm like i would love to do like an analysis of just that show because it's just so scary <laughs> yeah and i know that uh, vegan warrior princesses attack have done a lot of analysis about the show and how you know uh the way that they deal with race in the show is terrible because <laughs> uh, they have this colorblind casting and such so yeah check out their their work on that and um max gordon has, has written a lot about that as well but yeah, and I mean, in that show, for anyone who's seen it, Serena is this white woman who does this this kind of stuff, like aligns herself with this movement in order to maintain the small degree of privilege mm -hmm. that she has, you know, in order to be valued, etc. Um, and then, you know, spoiler alert, comes to regret it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think it's, and that's a really great, you know, warning against this idea of submitting to a patriarch. Why the hell would you submit yourself to someone and give yeah. them that much control over you? Uh, and your body and your life and, and just just hope and pray that they won't abuse you right I mean it, it's just absurd well and I guess it's the idea too that if 
you may not be at the top, but at least you're not at the bottom. It's pretty much what you just said, so that you're, you know, maintaining whatever privilege you have, so that at least I get to kind of be in control over the people below me, even if I have to be subservient to the people at top. But the, at any time, you can move down that ladder. So, um, right, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the only other ideas I had for why people might want to join such a uh, women might want to join such a movement um, was kind of like, you know, internalized misogyny or like the cool girl girl trope or when I think about someone like Faith Goldie, you know, it's like it's it's not genuine or even Lauren Southern, right? Yeah, because it seems like they just want to be at the boys table like they want to be there making the decisions they want to be um respected by men because in this society and i have fallen prey to this a lot in my life um thinking that you know my thoughts um or uh, you know what i contribute to the world has value if men recognize it as valuable yes um and if men are, are including me at the table where they're making decisions then that that's good and that's where i want to be right um, and I think for some women, I mean, I mean, Faith Goldie to me just seems like a complete grifter, yeah. right? So um, it, I think part of it might be just, you know, wanting to be at the boys table and wanting to be admired by so many men, right? Like wanting to be the focal point of in this male dominated movement, just being just so admired. And so, um, you know, having your your thoughts and your whatever sought out sought after by so many men, right? Yeah, I think even um, when I was doing my research on her, um, well, I know she did a run for mayor of Toronto. She and yeah. she would use like uh, Trump-like uh, slogans, like "Make Toronto Safe Again" and uh, yep. "The Media Is the Enemy of the People" and stuff like that. But I know um, some of her former coworkers just described her as, uh, I think it was quote-unquote a skilled social climber and conservative socialite she was often seen hobnobbing with powerful men in events and she was described by someone else as someone who just wants to win no matter what the consequences might be so she sounds like just the epitome of an, an opportunist and yeah um, i think lauren Southers the same who will just do pretty much anything for attention um mm-hmm. you know Yep. So, I, I mean, on the one hand, she's like dressing provocatively and, um, you know, cosplay on Instagram and stuff. And in the, in the very next instant, she is promoting like modesty and traditionalism on YouTube. So that to me yeah. again. Um, but but like what you said, I can completely um, understand the cool girl trope. Like I certainly went through a period, in fact, probably most of my adolescent life just trying to find ways to fit in with and impress men just to kind of be one of mm-hmm. the guys. Um, mm-hmm. So I definitely understand what it's like to like kind of want to put on a persona to like suppress and even sort of disconnect from my emotions in order to mm-hmm. keep men interested to even I I know I would rag on other women for being too emotional or too full of drama to kind of separate myself as one of the you know cool girls not like the other drama queens or whatever I even mm-hmm. like a couple of years ago went through a period where I felt it very necessary to separate myself from feminism because I didn't want to be seen as one of those like stereotypical SJWs like shouting on the mm-hmm. streets and appearing in cringe compilations so um yeah. I can definitely understand how that could be appealing to some yeah definitely and uh, I mean for me I mean 
you know, I, I always had a lot of strong thoughts, feelings, opinions, and whatever, but I always had to work so hard to get anyone to take me seriously. Yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, I, I understand the kind of posturing that you have to do um, as a woman to have your thoughts taken seriously. And it, the worst feeling in the world is when people just kind of discount what you're saying or just, yeah, yeah, really treat like just infantilize you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, and it's just like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's a terrible feeling. So yeah. Could be part of it. Um, and then, I mean, I, I know a lot of them are also being paid by really wealthy white men, mm-hmm. right, and white nationalist groups in order to recruit men into the movement. I mean, I, I would like to think the best of people and think that this is, I mean, the best of people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to think that, I mean, at least something like social climbing or self-preservation under patriarchy and capitalism is something that I can kind of understand right um but the the alternative is maybe that they're just like literally they did they just hate non-white people non-white people so much that they just want to recruit men to execute them for them mm. you know yeah it's like like that could be just like the cold hard reality for some women right I, and i i'm not sure yeah yeah <laughs> i'm but. sure there's some out there <laughs> yeah yeah um, but I mean, just on this submitting to patriarchy thing, I just wanted to read this caption from uh, the Gordon article. Brooke Heimbach, white nationalist woman. Brooke met her husband, Ma- Matt Heimbach, at a conference for American Renaissance, a pseudoscientific think tank that promotes eugenics. Heimbach co-founded the white nationalist traditionalist worker party with Brooke's stepfather in 2013. In March 2018, after Heimbach was caught having an extramarital affair and was arrested for assaulting Brooke, Mm. her stepfather disbanded the group. Oh, my God. Matt Heimbach recently started a new position as community outreach director for the neo-Nazi National Socialist (laughs) Movement. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, like, ladies, you really think that... Being, you know, dressing in traditional garb and getting married super early and having six kids. I mean, you really think that your husband's not going to cheat on you, that they're not going to abuse you, that they're, you know what I mean? Right. With, uh, why would you think that? I mean, this whole movement is about uh, aggression and abuse and domination and hierarchy. Right. Right. Yeah. That even, um, what you just said reminded me of The Handmaid's Tale 2, where the the commander, so there's this this guy, it, he's the epitome of patriarchal, uh, you know, sort of head of the household, espousing every, you know, super masculine or toxic masculine trait you could possibly espouse. And then it kind of flashes back, though, to what he used to be like before the before the uh, revolution and it just shows the way a person can change as um, patriarchal values are put in place and how so if you haven't seen the show it might not make sense but um, do you know what I'm saying like how it it would flash back to his life with his wife and he treated her kindly and they were it was like the the perfect egalitarian household and then as things changed and um, the men became in charge and women became subservient to the men um, Mm -hmm. his whole attitude changed so it only makes sense that if you install sexist uh, misogynistic patriarchal uh, values into a society that it will change the people within that society as well and that you know it's not going to be good for for women (laughs) 
Or for anybody. No, for it's anybody. not going to be good for women. And, and, right. And you're telling men to be these alpha males. And then you're also telling them, be really happy with, like, sedentary life where you have your wife and you only have sex with your wife. And you do that forever. And you raise six children. Yeah. And you're just at home changing. You go to work all day. You come home. You change diapers and help play with the kids and like that's supposed to be really exciting for these men who are encouraged to be these like fucking alpha dogs right 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 exactly (laughs) (laughs) anyway so that kind of moves into uh just the fact that like they're all hypocrites Mm -hmm. right yeah like none of these trad life trad wives well some of them actually do want that um, but for a lot of them, you know, like, uh, Lauren Southern, like Faith Goldie, they don't want a trad life. Right. They're not actually living a trad life. Like Faith Goldie is in her thirties. She's, she just got married. She has no kids. Um, she's a politician. She, you know, she's a, she's a social climber. She doesn't want to stay at home with the kids. Um, it recently came out that she had an extramarital affair with Richard Spencer. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yep. And, like, somehow she's out there telling women that, like, you need to just close your legs, ladies. Yeah, exactly. Like, are you That's kidding me? That's the ultimate contradiction, I think, with these um, women, especially these prominent women that um, get up on these mics and spout their um, their uh, caregiver talking points or that, you know, they talk about how women split proper places in the house, right? Um, however, mm-hmm. they're, they're saying that as they're uh, being outspoken um, and actively f- you know, supposedly fighting for white preservation, um, often mm-hmm. taking on these leadership roles, which are supposed to be reserved for men, according to their ideology. Um, so it's com- completely contradictory. It doesn't even make sense and goes against everything that they're presenting as the values that they believe in. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And like they actually, you know, in a lot of ways, like they actually need feminism. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, f- first of all, feminism is what allows women to have the choice whether to stay home with the kids or to go out and work i mean obviously the economy dictates that they probably can't stay home that's not feminism Mm -hmm. but feminism is about you know women being empowered to make choices that they want over their own lives and their own bodies right like you talked a bit about you know tara mccarthy and lauren southern actually needing feminism right yeah, well, um, <laughs> I was just going to say, it's funny because um, I think it was uh, in 2017, Lauren Southern, um, she made a video discussing why um, traditionalism is important and why women need to get married and have kids. Um, but then she got a ton of misogynistic, sexist backlash <laughs> because she herself is not married and she doesn't have children. And at the same mm-hmm. time, Tara McCarthy also began speaking out against this misogyny they faced online. And it's just funny, um, or I guess, a, I don't know, exasperating that these women, <laughs> women who belong to such an incredibly racist, hate-filled, patriarchal movement are shocked when their men turn against them. And then the hypocrisy underlying that um, is that with uh, these women like Southern and McCarthy spend their lives railing against feminism. And then suddenly um, it sounds as if they're actually espousing feminist values. Like in her video, Why uh, Why I'm Not Married, Southern goes on a long rant about how she as a 22-year-old is 
you know, not going to get married just for the sake of getting married and that other people should respect that. She says, Mm -hmm. you know, she loves the West because it allows women the choice to do what they want and that some women will be happier not being married and that should be okay. And it's just like, um, that is exactly what feminism is saying. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) So, And like, that's what feminism fought for. The only reason... The only reason that we're in this place today where women can actually be like, you know what, I don't want to get married and people will respect that is because of feminist struggle <laughs> exactly. for the past hundred years. Like, Jesus Christ. Exactly. exactly. So, it's yeah, it's the biggest hypocrisy. And uh, yeah. 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 And yeah, the, la- the last thing I wanted to just touch on was I, I think uh, you talked about this in your um, your video was just the fact that the whole movement itself is just based around this addiction of otherness, right? But in this movement, you know, that's so based around othering, then people will always find a reason to other other people. So even if everyone looks like you, even if you achieve this white ethno state, you're going to find other reasons to divide yourselves into groups and other other people. You're not going to like like everybody around you and treat everyone with respect. And it's going to be la-di-da, you know, sunshines and lollipops right yeah yeah <laughs> you're you're still going to be under this capitalist system which is going to try to maximize profit from exploiting your labor and it's going to try to destroy unions and it you know at, at this point i just i don't understand how you think that everything will just be hunky-dory I, I mean i'm sure a lot of people who are white nationalists don't even like all the white people they know i'm sure they don't like me right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> absolutely well that's why i think a, a movement destined or a movement like this is destined to fail because they're con- gonna continue to other each other until they're down to like the tiniest pool of people that you know what I mean? And that can, and, and that's not just going to be, so they already, so, you know, they, they other everybody that's not white and then regarding um, gender and sexual preference. So they out, so anybody that's um, not cisgender, um, heterosexual, they're out. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, right from the get go, oh, if you don't want children, you're probably out. If you're an effeminate or what they call a beta male, you're out. Um, so, right. you know, then we're left with uh, apparently only the quote unquote real men and women are those that are part of this movement. But that's going to be such a small group of people because you're going to keep outing people. Um, mm-hmm. people that don't deserve to even be on the same soil as like the pure white cishet normal folks. And it's this just purity game um, that is really uh, never going to turn out the way that they, they envision, I think. Horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I guess that's, that's it for, for our discussion for today. Do you have anything that you want to add, Leslie, before we... Yeah, no, that was and that was great. Um, I thought it was a yeah. really good conversation. We had a lot of good points, I think. So just thanks for having yeah. me on to talk about this. Yeah, thanks so much for coming back. And everyone, once again, please check out Mavlinder's channel. I will put all the links in the description box about things that we talked about today and her latest video on Women of the Alt-Right. I will link that as well. And yeah, just thanks so much. And we will see you next time. <laughs>